wasn't really aware of the title of the message today. He was just flowing in that prophetic call that's on his life. And, but I want to give you the title and I'll let you know how the Holy Spirit works together to confirm things. The message today is radical grace with radical faith. Radical grace with radical faith. And that is the equation of the New Testament. Radical grace with radical faith. Um, in, in Romans chapter 1, if you'll look with that, look with me to Romans chapter 1, we see this incredible statement from the Apostle Paul. And Janet, if you could reach in my coat pocket and get my glasses on my left coat pocket. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For the gospel is a righteousness from God that is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, this statement from Paul, uh, you've got to understand the backdrop from where he's talking about. Paul was a Jewish person. And in order to please God, you had to keep the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but the other 600 sub-commandments that were developed by the Jewish people over hundreds of thousands of years in order to please God and to be right with God, you had to perform. You had to be good. You had to earn by achieving and performing, by keeping the law, you would be made right before God. Now we know that the, the, the law had no power to enable people to keep, the, to keep itself. The law was not powerful enough to transform people's behaviors. All it could do was tell them what God wanted them to do, but then it brought what the Bible calls the ministry of condemnation. Because every time you read the law and you want to do the law, you don't have the power within your soul to, to be able to keep it. So in fact, the more you read the law, the more it awakens your flesh and the more incapable you are to keeping the law. In fact, you go in the opposite direction. The law exposes your need for a Savior. I mean, if you understand what I'm saying. So Paul goes as this Jewish person who tried all his life to keep the law and to be religious. Religion is an attempt to win the approval of God by performing and keeping the law. I have to earn God's favor by doing good things. We call it sin management. I need to do less sinning and, <clears throat> and then do more good stuff. So I need to get rid of the bad stuff and in, increase the good stuff. And if I add to it some proper believing in good doctrine, that's the summa, summation of religion. Religion is attempting to do less bad, more good, and believe the right content. And by my effort, appease, the, uh, you know, appease God, and so I'm in right standing with Him. How many of you understand what religion is? Okay, and religion is global. Religion is in Muslims, religion is in Jews, and guess what? There's a version of religion called the Christian religion, 
meaning we slip away from this gospel and into performance. So today, we're going to talk about the radical gospel of grace mixed with radical faith in that grace. And this is absolutely critical to liberate you as a person to appropriate the grace of God. So Paul says, I'm no longer ashamed of this gospel. In other words, I used to be ashamed of it because what I'm about to tell you seems embarrassing and awkward. Because it's going to eradicate this, this performance orientation altogether. And I am, I am basically recognizing that one cannot get right with God by keeping the law. So he goes, I am not ashamed of this gospel. The word gospel means what? It means such great news, it's almost hard to believe. It's, it's nearly too good to be true. That's what it means. It's nearly too good to be true. And he goes, I'm not ashamed of this, this, this great, extraordinary announcement or this information because it is the power of God for salvation. Now, salvation is not just getting out of hell and going to heaven. Salvation is to be made whole and into the likeness of Christ. So he goes, the only way that you can be transformed into the likeness of Christ is by understanding and applying this gospel of grace for it is the power of God to transform you day after day after day. Wow. Your quality of life hinges upon how well you understand the gospel and how well you apply the gospel in your life. And therefore, we must tackle this issue week in and week out because if we're not clear about what is this gospel, we will slip back into religious performance and striving and become heart either under condemnation and or self-righteous arrogance. And neither one of them are very pretty. Now this gospel... This general term gospel was referred to in other ways throughout the whole New Testament. Sometimes it's called the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ means Jesus Christ is good news. Okay? It's also called the gospel of the kingdom. That no longer is the kingdom out there. The kingdom is here. The rule and reign of God is here and now. It's at hand. And the good news is there's a new king in town and there's a new kingdom in town and heaven has come to earth and it's now and it's an ever-expanding not yet. So the gospel of, the, of Christ and the gospel of the kingdom are inseparable because you can't have the kingdom without a king. Now, is another great reference to the gospel. It's called the gospel of grace. In Acts 20, 24, Paul says, I, I live... I give my life for the gospel of grace. And that's the thing that we want to break down, we want to talk about today, is what is radical grace? Radical grace. Because um, there is admixture in all of us. There's some degree of um, perception that we've got to do good, be good, in order to um, appease God. 
And because we think wrongly, we are not appropriating this grace because it's mixed. There's a mixture in it. Okay, so let's go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I want you to understand that this gospel of Christ, this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of grace um, is a matter of life and death to you personally and to the city or community that you live in. If you're fuzzy about this topic, you're living beneath the promises of God. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Well, let's ask ask, uh, uh, Ephesians 2. Let's go up to um, verse 4, actually. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in trespasses. It is by grace you have been saved, made whole. And God raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ, in order that in the coming ages... He might show the incomparably riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not because of works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Oh, my goodness. Okay, Paul summarizes the gospel and gives it a blanket statement. I want to break this down for you a little bit, and then we're going to move over into Romans. Paul says this, we are saved by grace. Through faith. Now, what is grace? This this word has been dummied down so much that it's bare, it's it's almost like a, a meaningless word to us. And we've got to recover the depth of this of this word. The word grace in the Greek is charis. It's where we get charismatic. And it means several different things depending on the context of the sentence it's placed in. The word charis, or grace here, also means gift. It does mean grace, which we're going to break, but it also means gift. It's a gift. It's something that comes unearned and undeserved and unmerited. It is a gift from God. It comes from God. The word gift implies you've done zero, nothing to deserve it or earn it or merit it. It's been given to you freely. So the word charis means gift. It also means thanksgiving, which is an appropriate response when you get a gift. And it also means joy, which is an appropriate emotion when you're given a gift. So when you get aware of what you've just been given... You're extraordinarily overwhelmed with gratitude and joy because they accompany this extraordinary generous gift that's been poured out upon you. Grace. 
probably one of the most important words in the Bible, uh, right along with covenant and Christ and kingdom. It, it should be in your top ten words for you to do word studies in for the rest of your life. Okay, now, the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus Christ in John 1, he is grace and truth. Jesus is grace. He is the gift from heaven to you. Jesus is the greatest gift you can be given. And then, Christ, when he ascended, he released the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is called the gift of God, the grace of God. The person of the Holy Spirit who comes back and dwells in you, sealed in, at your conversion, and then on you for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ in spirit form, he's called the Spirit of Jesus in the book of Acts. Jesus Christ is grace, and he unleashes himself in the form of the Spirit to empower you to become ever transformed into his likeness, which is grace. Now, a lot of times we think of grace as just the mercy of God, but the, actually the, the word grace is a canopy for a lot of things. It's a canopy word. It's a massive word that includes a whole bunch of subsets in it. One of those subsets is mercy. Mercy, meaning while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. He died your death. And you're, you have been forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, and you've been made right before God through Jesus. And his mercy covers you even while you were yet a sinner. Whether you knew it or not, whether you were conscious of sin or not, your sin, which was a very dangerous problem in your life, your sin would have kept you out of heaven and into hell. Jesus Christ comes and solves the problem of your sin before you even recognize that he did it. That's mercy. So mercy covers all the bad stuff that you ever did, past, present, and future. In fact, it's not just sins, plural, but it's your sin nature, which is the root. Your sin nature is the root for all the sins that you've committed, which is the fruit. We'll get back to that in a minute. So the grace of God covers the mercy of God because isn't, isn't, isn't that good? Isn't his mercy good? Yeah, and so it comes under the concept of gift. You didn't earn forgiveness. You were given the gift of forgiveness. That's good, right? That's really good. Like try to buy your way out of all the sin that you did and that you are. Ain't going to happen. You cannot earn your own forgiveness. You are in deep trouble, beloved. Separated for eternity from God. And God in his mercy came and solved your biggest problem that you could not get back to God because you're unrighteous. That's mercy. But grace is bigger than just mercy. Grace is bigger than just dealing with the bad stuff Grace is all the good stuff that comes from God. And there's a thousand things in that list. A thousand things. Um, this, this grace, I want to give you a, a definition that comes from 
Graham Cook, you know, a lot of people think that grace uh, only comes to it as like they call it unmerited favor. But it's more than that because Jesus was given grace and he deserved favor. Grace came to Christ who was not a sinner. In fact, it says he grew in grace. He grew in grace. So grace isn't just something that's given to people that are needy. Grace is a good thing that comes to us to empower us and enable us to become like Christ and to do the works of the kingdom. So let me just read this definition from Graham Cook, who, by the way, is going to be in this room in July. Yes. And hopefully a lot of people from around the world come and join us in this room at our tribal gathering. It's one of my favorite teachers. So Graham Cook writes, All the language around grace has to be very rich. It has to be eloquent. It has to contain superlatives. God ties grace to his own nature because he is grace. He's all, he is good. God is good and his mercy endures forever. God is grace. He is good. He is loving. That is who he is. So, God, grace is not just undeserved favor. If that is all grace is, the Jesus, then Jesus never had any. Because the Bible says he grew in grace and favor with God. If we are only tying grace to something that is wrong about us, there is something wrong about our understanding of grace. Grace is tied to the nature of God. It is not tied to your condition. This is my definition of grace, and listen carefully. Grace is the empowering presence of God that enables you to become the person that God sees every time he looks at you. How about that one? All right, I'm going to read it again. Grace is the empowering presence of God that enables you to become the person that God sees every time he looks at you. And he looks at you through the filter and the lens of Jesus Christ as a son and daughter of God. We're going to build on that in just a second. His grace is what makes us acceptable to God in Jesus. Grace combines redemption and forgiveness. It covers our present and past beautifully. Grace and mercy deals with your yesterday. It also deals with your today. And it opens up your tomorrow into the destinies and callings that God has spelled out for you. The works that Jesus has planned before the beginning of time. You can't get into your destiny outside the enabling grace of God. So not only does it clean up and deal with your yesterday, your past, it covers your today and it explodes open your tomorrow. Both your identity and your destiny are wrapped up into how well you understand and apply grace. It makes us open to the impressive future that belongs to Christ. <laughs> what do you think? Have I whet your appetite for this 
thing called grace. All right, I'm, I'm not done. We haven't even started. We're just warming up. Let's look at Ro uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. How many of you like the Bible? I love the Word of God. Romans 5, 17. It's an extraordinary thing. Um, someone says that the book of Romans is the greatest masterpiece that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Because it spells out with precision, pristine clarity, this gospel of grace that we receive by faith. I, I heard a guy say to, say, say to me one time, he says, the Lord came to him and said, if you can grab the first eight books, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, and really understand and apply the first eight chapters in the book of Romans, you will never ever be the same again as long as you live. It's that potent. I, I would honestly love to preach through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans in this tribe and spell it out and lay it out Sunday after Sunday. I would love to go systematically through the book of Romans. And I will guarantee you at the end of this thing, you will be vibrant, lit up, so filled with the manifest grace and presence of God, you will be walking around like, like a species from another planet. Which, by the way, is what you are. Yeah. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You're a new creation being. So here it goes. I'm just going to read verse 17. For if, I'm in chapter 5 of Romans, verse 17. For if by the treasure, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Okay, I'm going to ask you to repeat this phrase. Reign in life. Let's, in life. What a statement. How many of you would like to reign in life? Meaning, to reign in something means you come above every problem, every issue, every situation that's trying to drag you down. To reign means your vantage point is so high your capacities are so great that you can override and overcome anything that is, uh, that, is, that is negative or positive released against you. To reign in life means you are who you are and you're doing what you're called to do. To reign in life means you know that you're a princess or a queen or a king before Almighty God. You know who you are. Your identity is clear and fixed. You know who your people are. And you know what you're called to do, and you're doing it by the power of God. Nothing is stopping you. Nothing is holding you up. To reign in life, to reign in life means you're doing exactly what God called you to do in the way he called you to do it. Now how does that happen according to this verse? How are you going to reign in life? Jesus says you're going to reign in life through the abundant 
provision of grace. Can you just say that statement? Abundant provision of grace. That's how you're going to reign, is through the abundant provision of grace. Now, this provision of grace is evidenced by what the Bible calls the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. Meaning that through Jesus Christ, you have been made righteous before God. God looks upon you as righteous. You're no longer condemned. You're made right in Christ. So by knowing the revelation that you were made right with Christ, you can no longer come under condemnation, guilt, or shame, which are the greatest psychological damage barriers to you walking in your identity and destiny. So knowing and receiving the gift of righteousness liberates your conscience your spirit, woman, or man, and enables you to know where you are with God in right standing. That's the gift of righteousness. Added to the provision, the abundant provision of grace, those two revelations, those two realities, set you on a course of history that will change your life and enable you to reign in life. Pretty exciting, huh? All right, so... The key to understanding how God views reality is is laid out in Romans, you know, 1 through 8. But I'm going to break it out in Romans 6 for you a minute. I could do Romans 5 as well, but let's just look at Romans 6 a second. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Listen carefully to this statement. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot, he cannot <clears throat> die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, listen carefully, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. So therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. All right, now, let me break this down for you. It's called total unity or total identification. You've got to understand how God views this whole problem and this whole situation. 
We've got to get Hebraic right now. We've got to understand our Hebrew-based God. We've got to know how God th- sees things. Okay, how does God see things? It says in Romans 5, back before we read this, he goes, In Adam all died. So God puts you in Adam. You are in Adam, Adam is in you. And in Adam and Eve, it says, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it says, the wages of sin is death, and they became severed and separated from the indwelling Christ and the life-giving spirit. The tree of, the, of life, they detached themselves from the tree of life and became self-reliant. They disconnected from God. When they did that, even though their souls remained alive and their bodies remained alive, their spirits were considered dead because they were cut off from God. They were severed from God. And that act of sin and rebellion was so grievous, it's called the fall. It's called deprivation. They were depraved. They, it was, they fell into iniquity. The word iniquity means twisted, perverted. So listen to this. When Adam fell, and you were in Adam, you fell. And you were born depraved. You were born fallen. You were born in sin. Everybody get that part. So if, if you understand perversion and unbelief and pride and arrogance and deception and lying, uh, and by the way, there's two categories of sinning in Scripture. There's unrighteousness, which is, you know, doing all, you know, unrighteousness basically means reverting to hedonism, the pleasures of this world to fulfill your deepest needs. That's unrighteousness. That's the category that says, I can go get drunk, I can go get stoned, I can go get, you know, promiscuous sex, I can go and lie and cheat and steal and basically satisfy my longings, the longings of my heart with unrighteous behaviors. I'm going to put, I'm going to get outside, I'm going to try to put inside the empty place uh, the meeting of my deepest needs inappropriately apart from God. That's unrighteousness. The other category of sin is called self-righteousness. I'm going to work really, really hard to be good. And I'm going to try my best to appease God. And that is religion. I'm going to invent my own religion, which means self-righteousness. I am going to perform and, and do good on my own. And that's how I'm going to get in heaven, by being good. Most people, if you say, if you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Their number one answer is, I've been a good person. It's like, really? You've been that good? You see, they don't know the gap between what sin produced and where God is. He's a holy God and we're an unholy people. So they have the audacity to believe that by being a little bit better than the other guy, that that's going to give them entrance into heaven. What an arrogant perception. God goes, even your best efforts are as filthy rags to me. And he's talking about a menstrual rag. Sorry. Just have to give you the Bible. Seriously. He's saying your best works, your most impressive contribution to the human race is as a used up menstrual rag, in my opinion. In other words... All of your efforts to think that you can get back to me are arrogance upon arrogance. Your arrogance has arrogance. Your pride has pride. 
So unrighteousness and self-righteousness are the condition of Adam and Eve. And since you were born from Adam and Eve, you picked up the family problem. You, you walk in both unrighteousness and self-righteousness at the same time. How many of you have felt that teeter-totter? Oh, you know, I call it binge and purge. If you've ever, you know, I do a lot of counseling over the years, and you deal with addictive personalities, people that are anger, they have anger problems, and they'll, you know, they'll, you know, unleash tremendous anger, and then after they're done with this tirade and terror and tormenting people, they'll have this moment of remorse. It's called anger remorse, and they'll go into a time of a honeymoon period for another few weeks and then until you touch that trigger again, and then they're abusing, abusing all over again. Alcoholism, drug addiction, same way. People will go on, the binge, on, on, a, on a binge moment, and they, in order to cope with life, they'll just drink, 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 drink. They'll just hit porn sites. They'll just, they'll just go crazy. It's called binging. And then all of a sudden, yeah, right. I mean, all of us, come on now, if we're honest, you can, you can binge and purge, but all of us, in just a minute, I'm going to let you know, you've binged and you've purged in one category or another. You know, I've watched people binge and purge in self-righteousness. But purging is the, when you're going to, okay, I'll be good, I'll be good. It's the time when you drink a lot, you blow it out, you sin, whatever you do, and then all of a sudden you're great conviction and great guilt, and all right, I'll never do this again. And then you purge yourself. <clears throat> and, you know, there's... They, they, they say there's no one more obnoxious than a person that just gave up cigarettes. You know, binging and purging. They're walking around like, you know, now they're the, now they're the little preacher telling everybody, hey, tobacco, stop that tobacco. You know, you get my point. We can move from unrighteousness to self-righteousness to unrighteousness to self-righteousness. a teeter-totter that's hell on earth. It's called binging and purging. And most people in the human race understand it one way or another. And if you think you don't do it, you're probably still on a steady trajectory of self-righteousness and you just have a low-grade self-righteousness that you don't even know about. So if you were born in Adam, God put you in Adam and Eve, and you know what it means to be Adamness or Eveness, right? Have you ever had an irritating thought? Have you ever been impatient? Have, have you ever been frustrated? Have you ever had a one little lustful, wistful thought? Have you ever told a white lie just to promote yourself a tad? You know what I'm saying? I mean, nobody is that good. If, so if you were born in the Adam, Adamic race, God sees you as one with Adam and Eve. You're one. You're united with Eve and Adam. How many of you understand you're united with Eve and Adam? Okay, now, here's the good news. God says, Adam and Eve and all the other Adams and Eve that follow them cannot fix themselves. You're in deep trouble. But the only way I can fix you is if I accept responsibility for your situation and I have a last Adam. I've got to come up with a, another Adam, the last Adam, and that Adam cannot have sinned. He's got to be a lamb without spot or wrinkle. He's got to be the perfect human being, both God and man. He cannot have sinned. He cannot have rebelled. He cannot have lost back and forth between unrighteousness and self-righteousness. He has to be the capstone of the human race. This Adam is the only Adam, this last Adam, is the only one that can die your death on behalf of all Adams and Eves. So Jesus Christ looks upon, I mean, God looks upon Jesus Christ as the last Adam and says, 
I am going to put the entire human race in the last Adam. If they're in the first Adam, I'm going to take the whole human race and I'm going to put them in Christ. So when Christ dies, you died. Read it, Romans 5, it says that. We've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. If Christ died, you died. If Christ went into the ground, you went into the ground. That's what baptism is all about. We go under the waters of baptism. If Christ was raised, it says you've been raised with Christ. If Christ ascended, you were ascended. If Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, you are now seated with him in heavenly places, Ephesians 2. And when Christ released the power of the Holy Spirit and came and dwelt in your heart by faith, you are now a little Christ, meaning Christian, meaning little Christ, a little anointed one that is now a new nature. Christ has now stepped inside of you by your invitation, and now your nature's been changed, and you are now in Christ. Christ is in you. You're no longer condemned by God. When God looks at you, he looks at Christ. He looks at you through Christ. You are as righteous as Christ. Why? Because you were put in Christ. And Christ was put in you. You are thoroughly put in Christ. The same way you were put in Adam and Eve, you've been put in Christ. So when Christ died, you died. When Christ was buried, you were buried. When Christ was raised, you were raised. You are in Christ. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You are now positioned with Christ in the throne room of God. You are standing before God, pure and righteous in God's eyes. You are as righteous to God as Jesus Christ. Do you understand this is gospel preaching? This is the gospel. It's too good to be true, but it's not too good to be true. It's true. It's true, so good, I'm tempted to not believe it's true, but it's true. Are you kidding me? I know myself. I know what I am and have done. And Jesus says, yeah, but while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Well, now, see, here's what I thought. I was saved in the... Jesus movement in 1971, and I heard I was saved by grace through faith, but when I, when I heard the word saved, I thought I was getting out of hell and going to heaven. Okay, got that part. All right, praise the Lord, I got in fire insurance. That's a good thing. Then what happened was I slowly heard sermon after sermon after sermon, and every sermon I heard added one more thing I was supposed to do in order to be a good Christian. And I heard a lot of them, like a lot of them. I mean, and the, the standards started going up. Read your Bible every day for an hour, pray. You know, and the, the more I grew in God, the more the standard kept getting bigger. Now you got to tithe. Don't just tithe. Give offerings on top of tithes. Okay, all right, I'm, I'm doing it. Show up at the meeting. No, show up at every meeting. Okay, all right. You know, and then pray. Pray for 15 minutes. Whoop, that's not enough. That's just a beginner's. Pray for an hour. Okay, I'm praying. No, you got to, if you're going to be really spiritual, pray for three hours. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now we're not done. I just, then I discovered fasting. Miss a meal once in a while. Whoop, that's not enough. Fast once a, day, once a month. Once, that's not enough. Once a week. That's not enough. Go on a 20-day fast, 21-day fast, 40-day fast. 
You know, because the more I do stuff like that, spiritual disciplines, spiritual behaviors, the more I will improve my own sanctification process. You've never done that, have you? Okay, hold on. Bench and purge. So listen to this. I get out of high college with my beautiful wife. We graduate together. We get married. Aw. And I'm 20. She's, never mind. She's a more mature wife. We go to seminary, which is one of the top seminaries in the in the world, Fuller Seminary in Southern California, I get a master's degree in theology and pastoral ministry. I become a denominational pastor. For eight years, I'm, I think I'm preaching the gospel. I think I'm getting it out there to people. I think I'm explaining this. I'm open to the things of the Spirit. But inside of me is this binge and purge, binge and purge little equation. I work, 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 and then I get exhausted, and then I'm like, oh, geez, I, I just checked out. Then I get convicted of my laziness in God, and I get, I get saved again. I sign the salvation card. I go out and buy a new, fresh Bible because I think the other one isn't quite doing it for me. I'm not kidding. And I, I back on the fasting wagon, and I'm like, now I'm digging down. I'm getting into it. And, I, and also, by the way, you got to share Jesus. So I had to share Jesus, not just, you know, I made a commitment to the Lord. I'm going to share the Lord, you know, once a week with somebody. Then it went up to once a day. I had to share Jesus with somebody once a day if I, if I was going to feel good about myself. little pressure, eh? So I'm a pastor. I'm in my seventh or eighth year of denominational ministry, reformed, evangelical, spirit-filled church kind of, kind of, a, I would say, a mildly open to the spirit. And I started getting depressed. I cannot be a Christian, nor can I lead people to be Christians, because this is a drag. This is hard work. I can't pull it off. How can I lead them and inspire them to pull it off when something is inherently wrong with me? I don't, I think I'm a little more, a little less disciplined and a little more whatever, even though I'm like one of the most, one of the more driven people I've ever met. Like, it's like a problem for me. I came out of Germanic-driven people, performance-oriented people. Both my parents were Scott-Irish-driven, highly successful, and that same worldview got all over me, and I just put that into my life, and I let that Germanic, Scott-Irish culture, I was more a driven performer than I was a believer. Because I was now my self-effort, my soul power was trying to be good. And I was getting depressed and discouraged. And I, I was ready to write my resignation letter as a pastor. Like, I can't, I can't pull this off. I'm not, I'm not convinced. This is not fun. And I don't know what happened. I said, Lord, something's, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just worse than other people. Because I'm only leading one person a week to Christ. And I'm only reading my Bible and praying three hours a day. And I'm only giving, you know, all this money, and I'm only starting, you know, maybe, and I'm still not feeling that I have the attributes of Jesus. Like, something's wrong with me, and I'm going to resign. 
It was terrible. And then one day, as I was opening my heart to the Lord, and just you know, just like, I'm sorry that you, you know, you made a mistake in calling me into the ministry. I felt so bad for the people. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I wish they didn't have me as their pastor. Um, I was reading in Galatians, and I read this verse, Galatians 2.20. And it says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God that loved me and gave himself for me. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. I can't be a Christian, and I'm not supposed to be a Christian. And as I did, like, I can't be a Christian dance the other night in front of the women. I can't be a Christian. I, I literally, I got so happy finding out I couldn't be a Christian. By my own effort, my, my own soul power. And I started dancing, and I can't be a Christian. I cannot be a Christian. I'm not supposed to be a Christian with my own power. I said, only Christ can be a Christian inside of me. The minute I got that gospel revelation, that it's Christ in me which is my hope of glory, Colossians 1.17. It's Christ in me that lives his life and energizes me. And my goal is, my work is simply to believe in Jesus, in the grace of God, in the indwelling Christ. My work is to believe. So not only am I forgiven past, present, and future, not only am I a new creation son, not only do I have a new identity and a new family, but I have a new destiny and a new calling that can only be acclimated and animated by Jesus. And it's all about Jesus, and it's not anything about me. My focus had been on me and not on Jesus. Oh, my goodness. When I figured out it's about Jesus and not about me, and it's about Jesus who is grace, and that his influence and his power inside of me starts mystically and profoundly altering me and, and cleaning me up and fixing me from all my weirdness, Jesus Christ started taking over because it became about him and not me. And Jesus said this. He goes, you place your faith in me and there is no limitation on what I'll do through you. Because I don't have any limits. I have the spirit without limit. And if you'll trust in me, there's not a thing you and I can't do together. Your job is faith. My job is grace. Let me do my job and you do your job. Your work, Tim, is to believe. That doesn't mean striving. Remember, we, we receive, we don't achieve. Receiving is grace. Receiving is faith. Excuse me. Receiving is faith. Sometimes it is accompanied with obedience. Yes, faith and obedience are one, but it's not earning it. It's accessing, it's accessing the power of God, the grace of God by faith. I don't earn it. I faith for it. Now, I have this wonderful Tahoe, 1999 Tahoe, that I got from Bob Seebeck and Diana Seebeck. Love my Tahoe, even though the engine light's always on. It just stays on. I think it just likes to keep me company. I don't know. But, you know, 
I could only, you know, let's think of Tahoness as, as this rolling grace package. Chevy Tahoe. It's got wheels, it's got brakes, it's got transmissions, it's got engine, it's got a steering wheel, it's got all kinds of things. And let's imagine my Tahoe is just rolling grace. Yeah? And it's got the capacity to bring me from Fort Collins to Laramie without a problem in the world. That was a faith statement. Because I have been on the side of the road in my Tahoe several times. <laughs> praying and calling tow trucks. But at this point, my Tahoe is full of grace. However, it could sit there in my street day in and day out. And, and I don't get to enjoy the benefit of all that rolling grace unless I apply faith. Now faith... Faith is really simple. It's really practical. You do it every day, all day. You're practicing faith. I take my Tahoe key. I open the door. Sometimes my remote works. Sometimes it doesn't. But you know, it's okay. It's on the 99. We give it grace and mercy. I put the key in, throw it in the thing, and I turn it on. And comes Tahoe power. And then I throw it into drive, and I push the pedal called grace gas grace gas grace gas grace steering grace steering grace steering grace then oh break faith break grace break grace but i'm touching the now my accessing this grace called tahoness i can't really technically say i'm working yeah right there's no like there's no correspondence between me touching the gas me hitting the brake me turning the steering wheel thou the the, the, the tahoe's doing all the work I'm simply accessing this grace by boop, boop, doop, 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 touch, touch, do, do, ha, ho, ho. See, in other words, I'm not working. I'm not pushing my Tahoe up 2,000 feet from Fort Collins to here. Where the weather is very different. I am simply faithing into grace. I'm accessing grace by faith. Now, if my Tahoe is a wonderful thing, in a whole wonderful world, think about Jesus Christ. All things have been made by him, for him, and back through him and to him. Jesus Christ is goodness and he's grace and he's love and he's power and he's wisdom. He's all the greatness embodied in Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all grace. And how do you access and tap into all that grace? By faith, you drive straight in, you get into the middle of Jesus, and you start calling down and pulling down the grace of God by faith. Is God a healer? By his stripes, have we been healed? Is it already done? Perfect answer, good theology. By his stripes, we have been healed. In other words, the healing is already there in the throne room. Healing is, God, is of God. Healing is of God. Physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing, spiritual healing. It's all there. It's been purchased by Jesus, by the blood of Christ, by his stripes. We've been healed. It's all there in the throne room, right? It's been done. 
Like, don't ever say, well, God made me sick because he wants to make me humble and give himself glory. Don't ever say that in this house. God hates sickness. God never puts sickness on anybody. Jesus went around getting rid of sickness. Poverty. Poverty is a curse. Is prosperity in heaven. Has been pros- he's been made poor that you could be rich. Is prosperity your soul prosper? Your, the prosperity of your life. Is that already been purchased? Really? Is the, is, are you, has your identity been changed in Christ? Are you a new creation son of God? Has the Holy Spirit told your spirit you're a child of God? In other words, you have the revelation. You're a daughter of God. You're not, you're not a, you know, of the first Adam or the first Eve. You're of the last Adam. Christ is in you. You're in Christ. Grace lives in you. You are grace. Now you access that grace by faith. So your work is to believe. God's work is to provide the grace. Radical grace, radical faith. What would happen if a group of people came into unity around the gospel of grace? What is available to a people like that? That here, that, that recognize all the promises of God have already been purchased. So when God told me, when I came through Laramie, he goes, I'm going to make Laramie a city set on a hill. He said the same thing about Kansas City. He said, I am going to take this carnal, pagan, humanistic, secular, humanistic, materialistic city called Laramie, and I am going to pour out my grace through the conduit of my people, and I am going to bring my kingdom in a manifest way in this city on Highway 80. And I'm going to transform this city to be a city on a hill, a city of light. That's the promise of God's grace. I am going to do a miracle here. I'm going to create a kingdom resource center, an apostolic prophetic hub. It will provide an engine of prayer where the people get before his throne of mercy and grace night and day. We will pray night and day, not just as a local church, but as a tribe, as a people, as a family of churches. And we will have multiplying micro churches of ultimately ultimately more than 10 to 20% of the population of this, sound, of this city will become new believers. I'm not talking about transfer growth. I'm not talking about going after and grabbing the Baptists and grabbing the... I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about card-carrying pagans that hate God and are, and are praying to the devil one way or another. And we as evidence of the grace of God, are going to come into their life, build a relational bridge, manifest the grace of God. They're going to come blowing into the kingdom of God, become new creation beings, part of the family of God, and their, their lives are going to get saved holistically, not just out of hell and into heaven, but become transformed into the likeness of Christ. Over 10% of the population of this town, we are going to get to lead into the kingdom. That's 3,000 people. And all 3,000 of those people are going to be in DNA groups and MKFs where they are being discipled well, relationally. And if they're not in, the, in our church, I don't really care. Just get into a church that loves the Bible, loves Jesus, loves the Spirit of God. We hope that, that, that you know, like what would happen if 3,000 people showed up here? If you think another baby is some extra work, wow, that's a lot of poopy diapers. 
That's a lot of inner healing. So we hope to conscript the help of the whole body of Christ, yeah? Come on. But I know it's going to happen. Now, in, com in, in communism in China and Russia, it only took less than 2% of the population to change the entire direction of that country. 2% two, 2 were socialist communists in China and in Russia. And they captured the philosophical ideology of a nation and changed its direction. That's all it takes is 2% in unity to change the world. If we have 10% of the population that are vibrant, radical, grace-filled, faith-believing Christians that know Jesus well, I think Laramie will not be as we've known it. Do you agree with that? So, since grace has been available to you through the throne of grace, so many things that we do will be done differently if you believe what just got said to you, which is the gospel. It's well established in the book of Galatians, well established in Romans, well established in Ephesians. We have sent you a PDF copy of a book called The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. It, it breaks out with excellent terms and clarity the gospel of grace and identification with Christ. You'll love the book. In fact, I have a friend in Grand Rapids whose father got a hold of the book. We sent it to her, and she, he got a hold of the book. He's been an avid believer, and he's up in his 80s. He read Watchman Nee in one week. He couldn't put it down. And this, uh, it's a very... Um, it's very Danish up there. It's very uh, Scandinavian in Grand Rapids. And so it's a very driven people, very performance-oriented people. This Scandinavian, strong Scandinavian worker heard the gospel for the first time, really, had a meltdown, weeping before the Lord, saying, I did not know I was accepted in God, and I'm no longer under the ministry of condemnation. I'm right with God. And it's changed his life. Now hell, and I'll end with this, hell's profession is to seduce you out of the throne room and into the courtroom. The word devil, diabolos in Greek, diabolos means slanderer, gossiper, accuser, and liar. Satan is a courtroom creature before the blood of Jesus. Satan is a father of lies. He's a father, all right, but he's a counterfeit father. He's a father of lies. So your God, your father, is trying to tell you how much he loves you and wants grace to come on your life. But Lucifer is a father of lies. And how is he going to seduce you out of the gospel of grace? Through condemnation and accusation. Because he's a legalist. What Lucifer will do is come to you as an accuser. And he will point out to you in detail all of your unrighteousness and all of your self-righteousness. And he'll make a clear case. Lucifer is a professional courtroom person with some detective abilities. So he, as a detective, he will get other people to gather because he has to use other people. He has to use skin. He will gather people to accumulate negative information about you and put it in a file. It's called a smut file. 
It's the file that he's going to use to bring a case against you. Got that? So he's going to use people, especially Christians who are still mixed into legalism plus grace, mixed grace people. They have the idea that they're saved by grace, but then they got to live by, by works. They're mixed grace people. They don't understand the gospel. They're into religion and performance, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're mixed, which is what I was before I got the revelation of grace. Satan will use especially believers to operate in this witchcraft called accusation and condemnation. They will, they will uh, form a smut file on your life. At the right time, just like in politics, at the right exact time, when we want to crucify our, our opponent, we will unwrap all this negative information about you. And we will get you in to come into a courtroom experience. And we will go through courtroom proceedings. And the prosecuting attorney, which is Lucifer himself, will step up through the mouthpiece of other people and they will begin to accuse you and create a case against you as a prosecuting attorney. They'll prosecute the case based on data that they've accumulated by observation and intuition. Then Lucifer will step around and act as a judge, but he'll do it through people, through skin. And that judge will condemn you and call you guilty. Then he'll look over to the jury and all the other people they'll gather, which is what orphans do. Orphans gather other people to agree with their negative conclusions. Did you know that about so-and-so? I'm offended. You should be offended. Let's all get offended together. And they, the orphans, get, they, they gather a jury of offended people. They create an alliance around a negative thing, an accusation, and the jury agrees with the judge. Guilty! Guilty as charged! <laughs> Throw him in the brink! I just became Irish. <laughs> so now, we're not done. You've got to, you know, agree with accuser. Now you've got to be the, uh, the jail keeper. And you've got to go and take that person into jail. But guess what? If you take them to jail through bitterness and unforgiveness, you're in jail with them. You're, you're as imprisoned as they are. And all day, every day, hell is trying to accuse you with negative information about yourself and other people. And that's why you get offended. And that's why you get critical and judgmental. And annoyed and irritated because you're operating in mixed grace. You dance between the, the courtroom and the throne room. Courtroom and throne room. Courtroom and throne room. That's because we have a toxic mixture in the body of Christ. It's called religion. Super mean. It killed Jesus. It will kill you too. And it will use you to kill other people. How do you kill off the body of Christ and divide it? You get it offended. You make it judgmental. You go, now I feel justified in pulling away from you because you did that. Because we accused you in court and found you guilty, you slimy worm of a Christian. That's how it works. Have you ever done it? Irritated, judgmental, annoyed, pulled back, separate, divide, and your love grows cold. You now, beloved, have been bewitched. That's what Paul calls it in the book of Galatians. The Galatian church started off in the Holy Spirit. They were moving. They were born in the Spirit. They were moving in the Spirit. And suddenly Judaizers came along and talked them out 
of following Jesus and going back to rule keeping. Get circumcised, follow the rules, wear the right things, say the right thing. And they were seduced and bewitched. It was called witchcraft, religious witchcraft to call them out of the gospel and back into religion. Paul goes, who bewitched you, Galatians? You have now uh, fallen away from the gospel. And i got to start all over again in helping Christ get formed inside of you. Now the church is in mixture. It operates in grace and witchcraft. Grace and witchcraft. Anytime you accuse or judge someone else, you're putting a curse on that person's life. That's called witchcraft. And there's nothing more dangerous than Christian witchcraft. How do you help someone? You remind God that they're a true son of God. You only look at their true self, which is what God only looks at. He is not talking to your false self. He took your false self, remember, your old man, and he put it on the cross. Your false self is dead. So God is not talking to your false self anymore. It's dead. Doubly dead, that's what Graham would say. It's thoroughly and really dead. Your false self has been crucified with Christ. So Jesus isn't even talking to your nasty false self. Why? Because he's not into necromancy. He doesn't talk to the dead. He talks to your true self, and that's the only one we should be talking to. When I talk to you, I should only know you by the Spirit. I should see you as a son of God, a daughter of God, and I only will see your true self. If your false self happens to be burping up and manifesting, I'll go, hey, whoa, hold on just a second now. You have just believed, you're just falling short of the glory of God. But here, I'm not judging you. I'm not accusing you. What I want to do is remind you who you are. Trust God for your deepest needs, for intimacy. Rather than fulfilling your own needs by breaking the rules, don't do that. That's what Paul says. Put your false self on the cross. Trust God to meet your deepest needs. I'm going to remind you you're a daughter of God. You're not a sinner hanging on for dear life. Now here's where this gets powerful. And here's what we've never seen for a long time, if ever. I don't think I've ever seen this in my lifetime. What would happen if you personally believe the gospel of grace and access grace by faith? What if you really believe this? Against all the accusations of hell, what if you really believe this? Secondly, what if we were really like this? What if God, not only did we believe it for ourselves vertically, but we were also a good news, grace-based people. What if we emitted the grace of God as a way of life? What if we were the safest place on earth? What if people could wander in here and they didn't need to wear one single mask to appear religious and good? What if they could say, hey, look, I'm going to just undress and tell you everything that's going on in my life, self-righteousness and unrighteousness. And we, in kindness and goodness, we good news them out of their false selves and out of the inappropriate way they're behaving, not with criticisms and judgments, but because we stand with them and we have the ministry of righteousness. We now stop telling them that they're unrighteous and condemn them. We have the ministry of righteousness. We say, no, you're the righteousness of Christ. Now, here's the paradox. The more you tell somebody how awesome they are before God, they become what they hear. Look at Christ and you become what you look at. What if we had the ministry of, remind, of holding a mirror up of Jesus and not their false self? What if we were the safest place on earth? 
where all those secret nasty things that people are really thinking about when no one's looking, they could come into a group and go, you know, i got to take this mask off. I'm sick of being religious. I'm sick of hiding my unrighteousness, and, I, and I'm sick of acting like I'm better than I am. I need to be in a group where it's safe, and, the, and you, you good news me. I can come into the light, and you will bombard me with the gospel, and you will not reject me for the journey that I'm on and where I'm at. You may not agree with my decisions, but, but you will love me. You will not judge me. You will not condemn me. I want to tell you the greatest mistake I ever made as a leader in the church was to invite people into a heart-connected unity called family without equipping them with a full gospel of grace. So there was mixture in the house. And some of my, the, the family members, the spiritual sons, danced in and out of the courtroom and the throne room, and they used their discernment as a weapon to hurt people. And I did it myself. And we had a religious mixture in the family, even though there was affection and love and connectedness, but we did not thoroughly purge the place from the courtroom. And so people felt spiritually justified in dividing and splitting. We went through, and the only time it's happened is a church split in this family one time because it was carried out by people that were in mixture. They danced between the gospel of grace and the gospel of mixed grace, and which is not the gospel. If it's mixed at any level, it is not the gospel. Listen carefully. If I'm going to give you a gift, but I ask you for 10 bucks, let's say the gift is worth 1,000, but I say, hey, but you know what? Could you just give me 10 bucks? Even the 10 bucks stops it from being a gift, doesn't it? So there's a hook. There's a hook. Most people are walking around with a yeah, but in their conversation around the gospel. And God wants to de detox us from the mixture that's in this house. Because until we're safe and operate in the grace of God, he cannot entrust us with a degree of the anointing of the Spirit that he wants to give us. He's going to give us a mighty outpouring of the the Spirit of the Lord, but he doesn't want to give it to people that are partially Pharisees, that have opinions, negative opinions about other people, look down on the body of Christ, look down upon other people. He wants to have a church that gets the grace of God, can be entrusted with the grace of God, can operate in the grace of God, not only vertically, but horizontally. We emanate the good news of Jesus by who we are, not just what we say. I've never seen it. Would you stand with me and let's pray for this? Would you repent today? Repentance means you don't have to get all weepy and moany and groany. Repentance says, Lord, I think you changed my mind. I think my mind is a little more convinced of the finished work of the cross. I think I'm going to buy into the gospel of grace and I'm going to ask you to detox me from my mixture. Like, I don't like the mixture, religious mixture. It doesn't serve me, it doesn't serve you. I've misrepresented the gospel of grace. I have done that myself. I've used my discernment to come into the courtroom and hurt people with it, and say negative things about people. That is not your job description, nor mine, to judge people. 
could you resign? Could you like say goodbye to the courtroom? Say, hey, courtroom, see you later, you're gone. Hey, religion, hey, performance, you're done. I fire you. I come into Jesus Christ. I'm going to be placed in Christ. Okay, take hands, if you wouldn't mind. And I'm going to ask for this revelation of grace. By the way, it's a revelation. It's not just information. What you just heard was supernatural revelation. But if you don't mix it with faith, it's going to be just simply interesting information, not transformational revelation. I know a lot of people that have heard this information and it's changed nothing. They're still crotchety. They're still mean. They're still not nice. And they still don't have a wide open heart to the person of Jesus. So this is a revelation that takes supernatural grace. So here's your, here's your prayer. And I'd like you to repeat after me if you can. Father, I come before you in the mighty name of Jesus. Through his shed blood on the cross. I come before the throne of grace and mercy. And I ask you this day. To open my mind and heart to the true, pure gospel of grace. Enable me to understand and apply the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom. Transform me now. From dead works, from, dead works. From, sins of from sins of unrighteousness and self-righteousness, and self-righteousness. I, walk my false self I walk my false self to the cross. To the cross. I have been crucified, have been crucified with, Christ. with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I am a child of the Most High God. I am a son or daughter of Jesus. My nature has been changed. I am righteous before God. I am as righteous as Jesus. Because I am in Christ. And Christ is in me. I receive this gospel by faith. I ask you, God, to unleash an increased revelation of the gospel of grace and pour into my heart and mind the gift of faith. <laughs> because I am saved by grace through faith. <laughs> Radical grace. Radical faith. Now just invite the Holy Spirit right now. Just say, Holy Spirit, you are grace. Jesus Christ, I invite you to flow through me. And I invite you to come on me. Baptize me in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, would you baptize me in the Holy Spirit? That's a biblical term. That means to be dipped. To be immersed. Just say, Jesus would you baptize me 
in the Holy Spirit and fire. I can't be a Christian outside of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. The weight goes down on grace, which I've tapped by faith. Because you are grace. <laughs> you are good. You are good. <laughs> this is good news. <laughs> really good news. <laughs> now I just bless you right now in the mighty name of Jesus. I bless you. I bless you. I bless you. With an increasing revelation of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of grace. May the Lord give your mind the capacity to grab what the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Galatians and Romans. Now let's ask one more thing. Father, in Jesus' name, help us as a church family and as a family of churches embody your grace. Make us the safest place on earth. Make us a good news people. When people get around us, they feel like they just met Jesus and walk straight into heaven on earth. May saint and sinner alike like to hang out with us. Because we have the ministry of reconciliation to tell people that they are right before God because of Jesus. And all they need to do is to receive Jesus Christ into their hearts to activate this transformation. Because it's already been done. <laughs> now that's a fun thing to tell people. <laughs> Holy Spirit, we welcome you right now. Some of you are being healed. If you're, if you're sick in your body right now, you tell that sickness to go. Why? You don't have to ask God. You don't have to ask God to heal you. He's already healed you. Just tell the sickness to go. Tell it to go. Command the sickness to go. If there's something wrong with you, tell it to go. Say, I'm a daughter of God. I'm a son of God. I'm going to tell it to go. I, I, somebody here has an arthritis. They have an arthritic condition. And it's an inflammation. It's very painful. I'd like to have you command that arthritis to go out of your body right now. Just say, get out of my body in Jesus' name. Get out of my body in Jesus' name. Get out of my body in Jesus' name. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Some of you are going to sense the presence and the power of God. Come, Lord, right now, just the energy of heaven to transform us. More, Lord. More, Jesus. More, Lord. More, Jesus. Just take one more second, and then we'll go for lunch. Sometimes the Holy Spirit feels like electricity. The word is energia. It's the energy of God. 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit can feel like liquid love pouring into your heart. Romans 5.5. 5. There. There it is. More, Lord. There it is. More, God. There it is. More. You know, Father's hugging you right now, love. The hug, the hugging, this, the presence that you're feeling is the hug of the Father around you right now. He's kissing your heart. Feel that? Yeah, that's awesome. You're being filled with the Holy Spirit and fire. Yeah. More, Jesus, more. Man, I prayed over a group of grade school and junior high and high school kids. It was so amazing to see these little kids getting the power of God pouring through their bodies. It was amazing. 